Good morning. I'm Dave Selvig, and our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Mark. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 from the New American Standard Bible. When he, Jesus, had come to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. We have been looking at miracles in the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to look at a particularly colorful story about a paralytic who comes crashing through a roof. And uh, Jesus, instead of initially extending healing to him, uh, extends to him forgiveness. And there's sort of a, a twist there. It's an interesting uh, story. And the emphasis that I want us to put on it today is on this idea of forgiveness. If you would like another angle on this passage, a sermon that focuses on the healing aspect of it, I preached on it November 2012. And there's a link to that in your sermon resources folder if you need help falling asleep. Uh, the twist in this story today is Jesus' initial response when he says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is a twist because uh, we don't hear the paralytic or his friends asking for forgiveness, uh, and their actions would... Uh, dramatically emphasize the fact that they want healing for the paralytic and not forgiveness. They're not thinking, I don't think, about forgiveness at all. But what we see in the reaction of the scribes 
is that forgiveness is really uh, what the moment was set up for. That everything has been a prelude to this moment where Jesus gets to show us and teach us about this concept of forgiveness. And not just as we extend to each other, but primarily as forgiveness, uh, uh, something that we receive from God himself. And the first question that I have for me and uh, for us is, what do you think about forgiveness? You know, do you ever think about it? Is it a word that you think about? Is it a concept that you feel the need for in your life? I don't know uh, about you, but for me, my read of the culture today is that forgiveness is sort of like this specialized thing. It's been marginalized and it's only relevant on special occasions, like you did something blatantly wrong. But even then, our culture doesn't like to talk about forgiveness because then it's admitting that there was a wrong done, that there is some thing called truth and you know, absolute truth, and we violate it's a moral standard, and we have to now seek uh, the making right of something that was wrong. And so we like less binary words like maybe uh, mistakes, or I'm having a bad day, or you know, I may have misspoken, or you know, just sort of these uh, euphemisms that uh, don't really uh, say the words, I'm sorry. You know, I was thinking about that. How rare uh, is the occasion when I hear myself or others say, I'm sorry. It's always some other version of that that's lesser and it's less confrontational. It's a little bit more passive-aggressive, more diluted. But I'm sorry. When's the last time you heard, I'm sorry? Just somebody coming to you, maybe somebody you're managing or a coworker or a friend or a family member, just straight up. No mistakes or misspeaking, but just, I'm sorry. I think it's kind of a rare thing. Uh, But I think here, uh, Jesus is implying that forgiveness is not just this extraordinary thing. It's not some outlier, but it's always relevant. It's always uh, called called for. And it's not uh, just something that... um, uh, we have to ask for, but it's something or something we feel, but it is the medicine, whether we know it or not, it's the medicine we need. It's the treatment we need. Forgiveness from God. And I wonder, as I think about that, if you think that's true. If you feel that in your everyday life, do you experience your need for forgiveness? And I have to be truthful with you. My answer as I was thinking about this question is no, I don't feel it very much. Sometimes I think things are kind of uh, out of whack a little bit. But forgiveness, really? When is the last time you asked God for forgiveness? When you said, God, please forgive me for my sin. You know, it's just uncomfortable even using that word, even in private, it seems. Now, uh, I have some other emotions and feelings and memories that come up when I think about the topic of forgiveness as well. I remember growing up in an evangelical church, and for me, the topic of forgiveness was sort of an intense topic. I associated with some intense experience of guilt. You know, it's kind of manipulative where the preacher is trying to make me feel guilty. Or Uh, the preacher is maybe making me feel like I need God. When in reality, I kind of feel like I need a sandwich more or, 
you know, uh, I want to go do something else or have fun. Or I'm not feeling my need for forgiveness, but in that manipulative sermon, I would feel like, oh, gosh, I need God. He's right. I'm guilty. I'm, I'm messed up, and I can't get anything right, and I need God in my life. And I kind of associate that, that, that kind of um, thing with forgiveness. What about for you? What feelings and memories come up for you? as we think about forgiveness. What is the meaning of this when the paralytic comes to Jesus and wants to be healed physically, and Jesus says, I'm going to meet your every need, starting with the most important one that defines all other needs in your life. You're forgiven. What does that mean? We have one question I want us to address today. And the question uh, is, why forgiveness? We're not going to talk about what forgiveness is. We're not going to talk about how to extend or receive forgiveness. We are going to talk about why. Sort of make the case for it. And then we'll have an application and a conclusion. And uh, before we get into the first sermon, let me say that as I interacted with this topic over the last, uh, I guess, about two weeks or so, uh, it was uh, a little bit boring, and then it got really intense. And I spent the second half of this week crying a lot, and I've, I sort of feel emotions welling up in me as I uh, think to share the rest of the sermon, even, for, even though it's my second time today. And so um, even during the singing, uh, I had some emotions and tears I was wiping away. So uh, forgive me um, ahead of time if I go there again. I'm going to try not to. Okay? Uh, Why forgiveness? I want us to start looking at, by looking at verses 5 to 11. This is sort of the meat of the story. And I'm going to read it for us one more time. And Jesus, seeing their faith... By the way, uh, if you read certain versions of the Bible, you'll see an asterisk next to certain verbs. And it's because Mark doesn't like to use the past tense. He likes to communicate the immediacy and the relevancy of the, the nowness of the story. So he just uh, actually uses the present tense. Um, so I'm going to read it in that tense for us. And Jesus, seeing their faith, says to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, says to them, Why, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Uh, This interaction is rich. It's got a lot of uh, preachable points to it. And I want to just highlight a few of them and then really get into what I want us to uh, focus on today. The first thing worth mentioning is here there is this emphatic implication that Jesus is actually God. This is the controversial statement in our culture today, that Jesus is God. 
And the way we see this is the scribes themselves say, how, how can you extend forgiveness? Only God can do that. And Jesus goes, right. You're forgiven. And there is this self-understanding. And that's another thing that's brought into question is Jesus' own self-understanding of his divinity. Uh, some skeptics or some uh, bridge builders like to say, you know, it's we who have attributed divinity to Christ. But Christ was actually sort of just being a dude, just a dude. And Jesus here is clearly saying, no, actually, I'm God. Not God as you think I am, because your understanding of God is small and it's skewed. But I am God. And out of this understanding, we have this theology that we call the Trinity, and the Trinity means that God in reality exists in the form of three persons who are one. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And out of this Trinitarian truth, we have this very fundamental fact that truth is actually relational. That truth, when you come to understand what it is, it's really describing the reality of love. And so it's such a shame to me that Christianity isn't associated with love more. It's more associated with the moral high ground or hate or judgment or hypocrisy. But in reality, the center of what being a Christ follower means is believing that Jesus is God. And if you believe Jesus is God, you believe that God exists in three persons. And if God exists in three persons, then God is love. Truth itself is relational. And so anything you claim as true but does not love its neighbor is probably not as true as you think it is. So that's one of the truths that we see here. Jesus is God. And out of this Trinitarian relational understanding of truth, Jesus says, I forgive you because that's what love does. That's what truth does. That's what the triune God does. Only a triune God understands the concept of forgiveness because it's an expression of this larger truth of love. God is Christ. Christ is God. That's the first truth worth mentioning. Another um, highlight for us here is that forgiveness is actually the harder thing of the two, and it is the hardest thing that God himself can ever do. Because when you heal somebody, right, you're extending your power. You're exercising power. But when you forgive somebody, you're exercising love. And love is costly. And so these scribes are upset with Jesus for forgiving this paralytic rather than just healing him. And uh, Jesus says, which is harder? I've done the hardest thing and you're upset with me. But just so you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, that is the authority of God because he is God, get up and walk. Be healed. And it's just a small little evidence. The easier thing serves as evidence of the more important hard thing, which is forgiveness, which cost him his life. And you just remember, love costs you something. You can't love without it costing you something. It's always an extension of the self. You're spending something, time, energy, 
focus, precious, limited resources on somebody else. You're giving them your life when you love. And that's the hardest thing you can do. To speak a word and heal, to exercise power, that's way easier. The third truth we learn here is that we have a resistance to forgiveness. You notice the scribe's reaction. Why, why is this man doing this? Why is he forgiving this paralytic? And they're upset. And here's the thing, is they should love the fact that somebody is forgiven. And their reaction should be celebration of the fact of forgiveness. And then, while they're lost in the celebration, they should have a passing moment of, oh, wait a minute, he's not allowed to forgive, is he? But anyway, forgiveness is here. This is awesome. Because their, their job is to love people. Their job, the scribe's job, they were like the lawyers of their time. Their job was to write out, describe in detail how God's love translates here on earth. And this man, paralytic, is being loved. And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm getting lost on a technicality here. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. And I understand that part of the story as something that I also can identify with. Because I don't like mercy. I don't like grace. I don't like people giving me free things. It makes me feel uncomfortable. It's actually an indictment on some level about my own competence. What would you think if I walked up to you and I said, you're forgiven? You would think, what did I do wrong? What do you mean you forgive me? I'm fine. Thank you very much. And it's some version of that even when people are nice. Why do I need niceness in my life? Why do I need people to be kind? Why do I need to be on the receiving end of things I don't deserve? It's humiliating to receive a, a gift from somebody. You immediately have to take back control and write a thank you note. You know this in the Northwest. And the scribes are the same way. Uncomfortable with concepts like forgiveness, mercy, grace. Nobody really likes it. On a deep level, we fight grace because we don't want the indictment that we needed grace. We'd rather be competent and in control. Another truth worth mentioning here is our ignorance of what and all that is wrong with us. The paralytic thought, maybe the only thing wrong with me is the fact that I can't walk. And here Jesus is <laughs> You're missing it. There is so much more that's wrong with you. Just because you're not aware of it doesn't mean you don't need forgiveness. Forgiveness, our need for it, our absolute need for it, is not predicated on our awareness of it. You can be sitting here going, I'm fine. And God's like, it doesn't mean you are fine. It just means you feel you are fine. But you are delusional. That's the nature of self-deception, the nature of blind spots. If you could see it, it's not a blind spot anymore. It's just a spot. And that's what Jesus is saying. We have a kind of unconscious to unconsciousness to our incompetence. Not only are we incompetent, we're unconscious of it. Another truth worth mentioning is our ignorance of what we really need. 
we have all these false and temporary solutions. And Jesus says, I know what brought you here. The felt need, the point of contact is your paralysis. But I want to talk to you today about a paralysis that's deeper and more pervasive in your life. It's your need for forgiveness. And I wonder if we know that's true. I wonder how much energy and focus and resources we spend on a daily basis on false and temporary solutions that only address symptoms. It's like changing the bandage out every five minutes on a wound that won't stop bleeding. And instead of asking the question, why can't I stop bleeding? We just keep changing out the gauze. That sort of life as we know it. It's how we live. It's what we do. It's who we are. Putting out one small fire after another. There's always something that's taking away our focus from the real issue, from the real disease, the sickness that's killing us. And now we get to our uh, main point. It's Jesus' understanding of the pervasive, universal need for forgiveness as the medicine that we need. Do you believe that's true? That God's saying to you, son, your sins are forgiven, is the medicine that you need? That Jesus saying to you, daughter, your sins are forgiven, is the medicine you need. You know, uh, I don't think everything is directly about love, but there's something about love that undergirds and fuels everything. And I think forgiveness is some reconnection to the source of love and life itself. And I have some... uh, anecdotal evidence for this. I don't know. um, Raise your hand, and if you're a spouse here, you better raise your hand, if you've ever been in love. If you've ever felt the falling of the self in love. I haven't told Susie stories in a while, but I was thinking about this uh, this week. I just had flashbacks to specific instances when I suddenly felt like the universe was going to be just fine. You know, where my steps just felt lighter, like I believed that I could fly. And it didn't matter if other people drove poorly. It just wasn't upsetting to me the way it usually is. And the taste of food sort of just lost its importance in my life. It's just food, and these are just friends, and this is just school, and this is just my life. Who cares? Because... I'm in love, and maybe I am loved in return. I mean, do you remember what it's like to just feel loved? Why does that invisible, intangible, improvable, like you can't unprovable thing called love change everything? How does that happen? And if you've experienced it, you know what it's like, how it can recolor your whole world. And I think Jesus is saying something like that, that it's the lens through which you can now properly see everything. You know, and the scriptures tell other stories about this, that we don't even know how to 
receive and exchange forgiveness with other human beings in a proper way if we don't have this fun, more fundamental issue addressed, our need for forgiveness from God himself. You know that when you feel wronged, you're wrong in the way you're thinking about you being wronged if you don't have your wrongs done against God forgiven first. That when you've been a victim, when you've been the perpetrator, when you're just sort of on the passive receiving end of a world that's going crazy, you don't have the right way to think about it because you're distorted already because the lens through which you see everything really is the forgiveness of God. C.S. Lewis, he wrote a paper to the Oxford Socratic Club uh, trying to talk about theology uh, as poetry, talk about theology as a legitimate literary form. Uh, And he wrote an essay to them called, Is Theology Poetry? And I think some of you have heard this quote before. It's a rather uh, popular quote. I wanted to give you some context to it. The quote is this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. It's not just that forgiveness is one of the needs you need to have met in your life. But that is the need you need met in your life to be able to address all other needs properly. That if you don't have forgiveness from God, the things that you bring to a human relationship is wrong. It's twisted. It's disproportionate. There's a kind of skew in it that keeps you from perceiving it and experiencing it correctly that you're going to want too little or too much. You're going to have over or under desires in your life. The way you think about work, the way you think about money, the way you think about meaning in life, the way you see everything is affected by God's forgiveness of you and your sin. I wonder if you know that's true. Forgiveness is at the heart of what is wrong with everything and the wrong self that is brought to everything. The the truth that I want to invite us to consider today is this. Forgiveness from God is the solution that allows us to solve all other problems. When I am not forgiven by God, I am wrong. And I come to everything else in the wrong way. Every relationship, every ambition, every want, everything I see and touch is distorted and disproportionate unless I am forgiven by God. Here's another anecdote that serves as evidence for me in some way. Um... So I haven't slept well for three weeks. It's been rough. And sleeping has never been a good friend of mine. 
uh, but especially in these last three weeks, have been really challenging. And so I've been trying to trace my steps back to what happened three weeks ago that's got me all worked up and upset. And I realized this, and, uh, um, you know, it's just a normal thing, but I just sort of am more attentive to it this time around, is uh, three weeks ago, Susie and I started having one of our usual discussions, and the way we had that discussion uh, created tension in our relationship. And I felt this tension on the surface sort of covering everything, a blanket over everything for about three days. I just kind of felt, oh, kind of tweaked for three days. And uh, just waiting for those three days for Susie to repent and ask for my forgiveness. Uh, took a lot of patience and maturity on my part. Uh, but I don't have any. And uh, so it's been three weeks ongoing now. But these three days of tension led to me having bad sleep. And it's a cycle I'm still in. I had bad sleep, and when I don't sleep well, the first thing that happens is I don't eat well. Like my appetite changes, and what I crave changes, and when I eat and how much I eat changes. And then that affected seriously my exercise. Uh, For example, um, I ran the Mercer Island, I ran around the island this week. I was supposed to uh, mimic the race that's coming up that I'm running in, I ran 13.1 miles, and my goal was to beat last year's time, which was like an hour and 45 minutes or something, and my hope was an hour and 30-something. I ran it an hour and 50-something, so I just have to shave off like 20 minutes in two weeks. I should be fine. Um, But I just feel kind of bad about everything else in my life. And I've been able to trace it all back to those three days of tension that I had with Susie. And I've just been thinking, why does that happen? Why does this one relationship affect everything else in my life? It affected my work. It affected my play. It affected my rest. It affected my prayer. Why? Because this relationship that I have with Susie is the cornerstone of all other aspects on my earthly, in my earthly life. It just is. And if I'm not right with her, nothing else is right. And the scriptures teach this. That creation itself, that rocks, inanimate objects, molecules, like nanoparticles that we don't even know exist, the oceans space, stars, gravity itself is groaning for the redemption of the children of God. That everything around us is waiting for us, little old me and little old you, to get right with God. That somehow that is at the core of what is wrong and broken about our entire universe. Isn't that crazy? But I can see from my little, little example how that might be true. That it's God's forgiveness for me and that forgiveness is the lens through which I see everything else. And so now as I think about that, it doesn't seem so irrelevant that this paralytic should be lowered through a roof and Jesus' first words to him are, Son, Your sins are forgiven. Now that makes all the sense to me in the world. 
Here's a quote from Thornton Wilder. I didn't know who he was. I was a literature major, but I missed it. He's a three times Pulitzer Prize winning author. He wrote a very famous book called Our Town. Has anybody here read Our Town? Wow. Impressive. There's a quote from this book. He says, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? Do you know what life is about? Do you know how you're viewing life? Do you know how you're showing up in life? Do you? Or are you just busy addressing symptoms all day, changing the gauze on a wound that won't stop bleeding? What is really life about? What matters most in life? Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it every, every minute? Uh, the story, the resource I want to share with you uh, today is a, uh, a story actually I referred to last year before he died. Paul, Dr. Paul Kalanithi, he is a neurosurgeon out of Stanford and Cambridge, uh, brilliant man. His resume just keeps on going. And he died last year, uh, about a year ago, at the age of 37. He died of lung cancer. Uh, he was diagnosed at age 36 of metastatic stage 4 lung cancer. There was no way to treat it. And he knew he was going to die. And he was hoping he would have about five more years. But he had about a year after diagnosis. And he passed. And he survived by his wife, Lucy, and daughter, Katie. And uh, they made the choice to have Katie after he was diagnosed. Uh, but uh, he got to hold her. She was born just a few days after he was released from the hospital. And uh, he died. And last year I spoke of him before he had died. Uh, but this year I speak of him again after his passing. Uh, he was raised, in particular I'm interested in his story, because he was raised in a Christian home. And he died believing that he would uh, be a pastor if he wasn't a doctor. And I relate to that because I, at some point in my life, made the choice to pursue the ministry rather than medicine. And he wrestled with God uh, as an atheist uh, for uh, 10 plus years after his undergraduate studies in college. Uh, but after that, he came back to the faith. Uh, the book that he almost completed as he was dying this past year was, uh, I'm sorry, I said he died last year. He died this year, this January he died. Uh, the book that he almost completed as he was dying was finished by his wife, Lucy, and it was published last month, When Breath Becomes Air, is the title of the book. And it's such a beautiful title, you know, how air is breath when it's attached to life. And then it returns to just becoming air when it's not breath anymore. And then in one interview that Lucy, his wife, was giving, um, uh, she says that when her daughter was born, she marveled at how air became breath for the first time. And she drew it into her little lungs for the first time. And uh, probably the most quoted uh, quote from uh, this story over the last couple of years is uh, this one here talking about his daughter, he writes, there is perhaps only one thing to say to this infant who is all future, overlapping briefly with me whose life, barring the improbable, is all but past. That message is simple. When you come to one of the many moments in life when you must give an account of yourself, 
provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world. Do not, I pray, discount that you have filled a dying man's days with sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time right now, that is an enormous thing. I know that not all of us have held a child in our arms, uh, but I related to this quote as I thought about the first moment that I held my first daughter in my arms. And I remember this feeling of time stopping. I remember the feeling of nothing else mattering. There was great peace in my heart, and I felt affirmation. I don't know how, but I felt divine affirmation. And maybe that's what he's referring to as a sated joy. That maybe the universe was going to be okay after all. And it was for me a sign of forgiveness from God that God would see me fit to hold a child in my arms. A moment of affirmation and gratitude, something reconnecting in my soul. An author reviewing the book, When Breath Becomes Air, uh, says this about the book, rattling, heartbreaking, and ultimately beautiful, the too young Dr. Kalanithi's memoir is proof that the dying are the ones who have the most to teach us about life. I want to share with you a quote from the book, pages 170 to 171, um, that speak of his return to the Christian faith after he had left it for 10 years as, a, uh, as an atheist. And I want to uh, show you something here in this quote. It says this, <clears throat> Science may provide uh, the most useful way to organize empirical reproducible data, but its power to do so is predicated on its inability to grasp the most central aspects of human life. Hope, fear, love, hate, beauty, envy, honor, weakness, striving, suffering, virtue. Between those core passions and scientific theory, there will always be a gap. No system of thought can contain the fullness of human experience. The realm of metaphysics remains the province of revelation. Yet, Yet, as a doctor, he's saying, I return to the central values of Christianity, sacrifice, redemption, forgiveness, because I found them so compelling. There is a tension in the Bible between justice and mercy, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament says you can never be good enough. Goodness is the thing, and you can never live up to it. The main message of Jesus, I believed, is that mercy trumps justice every time. Not only that, but maybe the basic message of original sin isn't feel guilty all the time. Maybe it is more along these lines. We all have a notion of what it means to be good, and we can't live up to it all the time. Maybe that's what the message of the New Testament is, after all. Even if you have a notion as well-defined as Leviticus, you can't live that way. It's not just impossible, it's insane. Please catch what Paul is saying here at the end of this confession. 
What brought Paul back to God after 10 plus years of atheism is this concept of mercy, the forgiveness of our sin. That there is really in the world, if we're honest, an idea of good. And the book of Leviticus, for example, seeks to spell out what good is. And even when it's spelled out that way, we can't live up to it. It's not just that it's impossible to try to do that. It's insane. Really, this is what the dying is teaching the living. That life is about how to receive God's forgiveness. It's not about trying to be good, trying to live out Leviticus. But it's about wrestling with the fact that the God of the universe who is perfect forgives you of your sin. And your ability to let that truth wash over you and then enter you and fill you. That's the meaning of life that the dying have to teach us the living. And why should we not learn this? We are also dying. And I want to know, do you believe this? Do you have a proper place for forgiveness in your life, in your mind, in your heart? When is the last time you asked God to forgive you of your sin? And maybe, just maybe, as you experience divine forgiveness, your physical world, your emotional world, your psychological world, your social world. Maybe everything changes. Maybe the, you, the way you approach problems. Maybe, maybe you can stop fighting everyone and everything. Maybe forgiveness for us is also the hardest thing to receive it to be okay with the fact that we need it. Who else can forgive sins but God alone? Have you ever asked him for forgiveness? Have you asked him today, this week? Will you ask him for it next week? I have one application point. I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me again. And the prayer is simply, Jesus, please forgive me. So I want to invite you to close your eyes. God, I pray that as we close our eyes, we would feel the paralysis and the cyclical nature, the stuckness of our life. So we pray for you to forgive us of our sin. And if you dare, pray this follow-up prayer Jesus, please heal me. I want to ask you to whisper that or say that in your heart. Jesus, please forgive me. Jesus, please heal me. And as you pray this prayer, I want to read to you from Isaiah 53, which describes Jesus, the one who had to pay the price for our forgiveness. Describing Jesus, Isaiah says, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one 
from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief, he poured out himself to death so that we might be able to pray the prayer, forgive me. So forgive me, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.